This is Decoding Healthcare. I'm Kevin Mann. And I'm Joanna Weiss. It is too cold in this city. <laughs> yeah, we're in Boston, Kevin. Get used to it. It's going to be cold for a while. Winter is coming. Hey, do you follow Game of Thrones at all? I, yeah, winter's coming. I gotcha. All right. Not only is winter coming, but in this podcast today, winter may already be here. Oh, yeah. I, I'd say we've been in kind of a summer state for the past few episodes of Decoding Healthcare. We've had some really optimistic conversations about how value-based care can work and how it can work better. And it's good, right? That's the right thing. This is big change, and you really have to focus in in on the positive aspects. Bye. But let's not think for a moment that this is easy or that it's working perfectly. I think it's the moment to really inject some realism. So yeah, if Game of Thrones tells us anything, it's that people go through life looking out for their self-interest, and that applies to all the actors in healthcare, too. There's no doubt about it. I mean, that's something that I encounter daily and something that we should discuss. In fact, we did with... Our Night King. Our Night King. Let's meet him. I'm Paul Levy. I was CEO of Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, a Harvard Teaching Hospital, from 2002 to 2011. Okay, let's be fair here. Paul is not a zombie. He's actually a really nice guy. I mean, he's an exceptionally competent person, and now he's working on negotiations. And he's really thinking a lot about human motivations and human behavior. You know, we have this tendency to talk about value-based care as it's this positive, optimistic thing. And the truth is it's not working perfectly. It really speaks a lot to people and their motivations and their self-interest. Paul wrote a piece for Athena Insight where he argued that value-based payments are doomed for precisely that reason. He said the motivations are just not aligned right to make this happen. And it was a controversial piece, got a lot of responses, some people arguing that, hey, I've been working on a bundled payment risk-based program that works great. But I think he was on to something. Progress has been slow, and it's not clear if we're really achieving the outcomes that we intended when ACOs were started. So it's worth setting aside the rainbows and the puppies, and let's get a reality check here. Let's listen to your conversation. There's an underlying premise of so-called value-based care that doctors and nurses can be incented, can be motivated by a change in the financial structure around billing for services, basically. And there's also a premise that the actuarial risk of patient care should be borne more by hospitals and doctors than by insurance companies. Now, let's think about that. Why do insurance companies exist? Well, in most markets, insurance companies exist to take risk, and they have a capital structure in place that allows them to do that. Hospitals and doctors do not. So those doctors are personally at risk for any change in revenue. A lot of people responded to your piece by saying it's not the incentives that you're talking about that are the problem. It's the structure. It's the fact that some of the programs that are in place have pushed upside risk instead of downside risk or that they've put the programs in place without getting full leadership on board or providing enough care management or support. How do you respond to that? Those are probably all true. So, for example, when the ACO project began at CMS, uh, the risk that was presented to institutions was not symmetrical. You only had upside potential. You had no downside risk. Well, that's, you know, heads I win, tails you lose. That's not a bad deal for a hospital system. But it still doesn't address the issue of the incentives, the actual day-to-day, work-a-day incentives for the doctors. Um, that's a, an underlying structural problem. Think about it this way as a negotiation. If you were the head of a hospital system and you were saying to your doctors, 
your cognitive doctors, your primary care doctors, your neurologists, your nephrologists, and to your proceduralists, the surgeons, the GI specialists, and so on. We've got the potential here under this capitated system to generate surpluses or losses. We have to think of a way among ourselves of agreeing how that surplus or that loss will be distributed among you, the doctors. <laughs> so imagine a room full of representatives of a thousand doctors. How does that negotiation go? Who's going to agree to take on the risk based on how a primary care doctor treats his patients or how a surgery doctor treats his patient? It's a very hard negotiation. Well, you're talking solely at this point about salary and financial risk. Are there other factors that might encourage people to take part in a system like that? I mean, we, we talk so much about physician burnout, and we've heard from so many doctors that they don't want to be on this fee-for-service treadmill. They would love a system that encourages a different kind of patient care. Well, I don't hear too much from proceduralists saying that they would not like to be on fee-for-service. But I do hear a lot from primary care doctors saying the way things work today it's very, very difficult for me to be the kind of doctor I would like to be. I can't do it in 18 minutes. Now, to me, that's a direct result of the salary system that exists, that we, in essence, underpay cognitive specialists. We underpay neurologists. We underpay pediatricians. We underpay primary care doctors. That kind of salary structure, in turn, is the result of the now famous secret negotiations that go on at Medicare where, where the doctor's groups get together and in secret decide how much an RVU is worth. But isn't that the whole point of payment reform? I mean, what's going to change that payment structure if not some kind of wholesale reform? Well, I think as a general matter, when you're making change in a complex system, to talk about wholesale reform is a mistake. If you make a global change, if you make a really big change all at once, it's likely to fail for a lot of reasons. And the problem is you don't know why it failed because you've changed too much too quickly. So I tend to prefer a more incremental approach. And I also tend to prefer an approach that would be motivational to those people whose behavior you're trying to change. Okay, so how do you do that in this case? What would actually motivate people to take part? in a system like this? Well, I, I can't see a way that people <laughs> would take part in a capitated kind of system. I can see a way, and by the way, the proof in, is in the pudding in terms of concierge practices that have been set up by primary care doctors. You have very good primary care doctors who say, I can't see 4,000 patients a year, so I'm going to ration my time by charging people an entrance fee, and I'll only see 1,000 patients a year, but I'll always be available for them, and I'll take as much time as I need with them. Um, there are a lot of ups and downs with regard to that in terms of social costs and the like. But that tells you something about the incentives that some very good primary care doctors tell you would work for them. It's not that they're trying to make that much more money. They're trying to organize the money they make so that they can deliver the kind of care they want. My view of the, the ACO capitated model is that it was an invention by economists and policymakers who really didn't think about what was the likelihood that it would work. <laughs> that happens in the government sometimes, <laughs> I hear. What about the idea of a salaried model? I mean, there are salaried systems out there, and I think there are probably some people in medical school today who imagine that their careers will be 
as salaried physicians. I, I think it has a lot of attraction to many people. You have the Mayo Clinic, which is famous for that. I think Kaiser Permanente does that as well. And their clinical outcomes are great. They're, and their doctors seem to be pretty happy. Right. And so the issue for that is um, you give up a great deal of independence as a doctor for that. But for many, it's a good trade-off. Your equipment and offices are provided. You don't have to worry about all the billing stuff and the like. But in most hospitals in America, we still don't have that. We still have a system in which doctors, in many places, doctors aren't even employed. They're independent contractors. So while that, that move to employ doctors may indeed grow over time, and then you might be able to introduce different kinds of incentives and protocols that they would follow, um, th that remains to be seen how quickly that will happen. As someone who has managed doctors, and I'd be curious to hear what Kevin thinks about this, what's harder? What's uh, convincing doctors to change the way they view financial incentives or convincing doctors to change the way they view standardized clinical care? First of all, no one manages doctors. <laughs> <laughs> Least of all, the CEO of a hospital. A CEO of a hospital, you're not. You're more like the mayor of a city than you are a CEO <laughs> of an organization. So you have to do a lot by persuasion. When I was at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, we never, ever talked to the doctors or nurses about the need to save money or to be more efficient. Our view was that that would not be motivational to these highly trained, very thoughtful, very well-intentioned professionals. Instead, we focused on, one, what would be best for patients, but two, how could we actually make life better for the clinical staff on the floors, in their offices, in the intensive care units, and so on. We also didn't direct this from on high. The, the improvements we made were, were initiated by the, the chiefs or even by junior doctors or by nurses. They were evaluated by them. We provided some technical help in terms of process improvement advice, but not clinical advice. It was advice on how to look at the workflow how to design experiments to see if something might work better or whatever. And the doctors were very engaged in that. They enjoyed it. It was problem-solving, and it was problem-solving consistent with their underlying values as doctors. Why did they become doctors? What well, was it to alleviate human suffering caused by disease? That's not about whether a patient gets billed as an X or Y patient. It's how the patient is actually treated. This is the first time that we've actually talked about patients in this equation. We've been talking a lot about the health systems and physicians and the way they're handling this, but patients, especially in the era of the high deductible, are more active players in healthcare and in, in making the choices about where they go and in thinking about cost. How far are we from the point where patients can really drive some of this change? Uh, uh, that's failing altogether. The theory of high deductible plans, as the economists like to say, is that the patient will have skin in the game. Well, that suggests that patients will be able to shop. If I need an MRI, if I need a colonoscopy, if I need whatever I need, that there's some price list I can go to in my locality and find out who's offering an MRI for less than somebody else. In Massachusetts, there's a law that requires hospitals and other providers to tell patients what it will cost them to get certain procedures. That law is being observed in the breach. The attorney general is not enforcing it. 
the governor is not enforcing it, the Pioneer Institute has documented over and over again that you can't get that information. So, Does that information even exist? I mean, outside of Medicare that does have a fixed price structure, aren't prices negotiated and negotiable all the time anyway? They are between the providers and the insurance companies and indeed between providers and individuals. There have been studies, too, that show that consumers don't always make completely rational decisions about what care to pay for and what care not to pay for. Well, there's a lot of uncertainty. There's also... There's some behavior that is fully rational. If you have a high deductible plan, I, I was talking to a friend who was a pediatrician, and she said, look, we're having trouble getting patients to come in to the office for their regular visits and, and even some uh, problems that come up during the year, early in the year, while people are still in their deductible portion of their bills. Then at the end of the year, after they've spent out their deductibles, they're asking us to advance things. And they're saying, my daughter has uh, allergies to bee stings and so on. Uh, We've already spent our deductible by October. Can we get next year's supply of EpiPens, please, under this year's deductible so I don't have to pay them next year? So we're, we're promoting what an economist would say is very rational behavior, but from a healthcare point of view is not at all rational. Athena Health Data has shown that people schedule more of their orthopedic procedures in the end of the year, right? The Absolutely. offices get really busy because you're going to get your knee surgery once you've hit your deductible. Exactly right. So you're not saving anybody money right. at that point. You're I, saving yourself money, but you're not saving the system money. And I have a friend who um, needs physical therapy, and she waits until her deductible is used up. And then she overschedules her physical therapy in the second part of the year. Same kind of thing. So um, I think we have to understand that healthcare is not the usual kind of market, that, that information is protected, it's held confidential. Sometimes it's unknown, sometimes it's really confusing. Insurance companies fundamentally do not care about the cost of healthcare over the long run because they get to keep 15% of every premium dollar. Hospitals, general hospitals, academic medical centers in particular, I like to say are are cost structures in search of revenue streams. They have a huge amount of fixed costs, and they want the business. Well, that's why a lot of people have looked to the government to be the motivator, to be the driver of any kind of payment reform. And there's plenty of mystery in the healthcare policy landscape right now. But one thing we can guess is that the Trump administration won't embrace payment reform as much as the Obama administration did. If CMS stops pushing these programs, is anyone going to pick up the slack? Not likely, unless employers who are paying the bill push. Most of them have not. Most of them have adapted to higher health care premiums by creating plans with higher deductibles. So they can say to their employees, we've kept your premium down. Sorry, you've got this higher deductible plan. And the employees don't revolt because they have no leverage or perceived leverage? That's right. It is what it is. So thus far, I, I really haven't seen any institutionalized structure or group of constituents in the healthcare world that truly, truly cares about cost. What about the payers? They're they're kind of on the front lines of dealing with the rising cost of care. Some of them are embracing more risk-based contracts or pushing for more of them. The insurance companies do well regardless. Under the federal law, they're allowed to keep 15% of the premium dollar for administrative in general and profit. Now, if on top of that, you can adopt a plan that shifts risk 
from your insurance company to employers or to health systems, so much the better. So if it's on the consumer, the purchaser, the ultimate user of the health care to do something, are there tools out there? I'm looking for something positive here. But, but, are there t- <laughs> Before we get to the consumer, there yes. are things the federal government could do today that would make a difference in the trajectory of health care costs. One, which is one that President Trump has talked about, is to allow Medicare to negotiate for drugs on, on price. Congress has prohibited that in the past. We're Which the, Andy Slavitt, the, the former head of CMS, said, go Trump administration, exactly. right? Exactly. And I can't think of any country in the world that doesn't permit the government health plan to negotiate for drugs. And the fact that we don't here is a tribute to the lobbying efforts of the pharmaceutical world. One. Two, under the current rules, if you have a device that's approved by the Food and Drug Administration, a new surgical technique or whatever, Medicare has to cover it. So FDA does the safety analysis. Medicare has to pay for it. But no one has done the cost-effectiveness analysis of that. In England, they have something called the NICE Committee that looks at new innovations in, in care and evaluates whether the National Health Service should pay for them or not based on efficacy. They're presumed safe but they look at the relative costs and benefits. So those two measures, I think, would go a long way. The third measure, I think, that would go a long way is uh, to pay primary care doctors better so that they can spend more time with patients and reduce the amount of referrals from those primary care doctors to specialists. And where does that happen? In the secret chamber where they determine the RVUs? Yes, it actually does. But once again, that secret chamber reports to Medicare. We have to understand that the federal government, although it only controls whatever portion of care through Medicare that it does, let's say 30% or 40% of the country, what they do establishes standards that the insurance companies follow. So they could do things uh, administratively. I've talked to previous Medicare administrators, including some of the world's experts on patient safety and quality who happen to live in in this vicinity, and I said, why don't you do some of this stuff? And the answer that was given, in essence, was the lobbying is too powerful in Washington. So perhaps if you have a president who's not so responsive to that lobbying, maybe he'll get it done. Looking into your crystal ball. My cloudy crystal ball. Your cloudy crystal ball. What do you see, let's say 10 years from now, the future state of healthcare payment being? What have we kept from what we have today? What's different? I think it's going to be a particularly difficult time for people running hospitals and for, for doctors in terms of the finances of this system. The, the, the money squeeze is going to happen because you can't keep increasing the percent of the economy that goes to health care. Now, what seems to be happening as a result of that is we're seeing market consolidation among providers health systems growing and growing and growing. And um, there's been a lot of study of market concentration in, in healthcare. There's a fellow named Martin Gaynor at Carnegie Mellon in particular who's written about some of this and other people. And what that shows is in metropolitan areas where there's been market consolidation, prices have gone up. Is single payer anywhere on the horizon? There are certainly people in the in government or you know in, in politics agitating for it and within healthcare even agitating for it. Uh, A very attractive model is actually in the Netherlands, where they don't have single-payer. They have competing nonprofit 
insurance companies who compete for your business on the basis of the quality of the service they offer you. And that actually seems to work very well. I think it's important to remember that even if we had a single-payer plan, there are still structural issues that have to be addressed. So, for example, if you have a single-payer plan, which essentially Medicare is, but they can't negotiate with drug companies on drug prices, you're going to have ever-increasing drug costs. And likewise. So the way you run a single-payer plan is very important. It's not, a, it's not a panacea just by changing over to that. One thing it does bring about is a vast reduction in administrative costs. Uh, you look at Canada and how many people it takes to handle billing and so on. It, it's a minuscule number of people. So we could save hundreds of millions of dollars on the administrative side. But we wipe out a lot of jobs in the insurance industry. Where are those people going to go? Well, that was exactly my point. It's really important to understand that one person's costs is another person's income. And so ultimately you end up with a political calculation here as to how much of our economy do we want to spend on health care, who should be in that sector, whose ox should be gored and whose ox shouldn't be gored. Which comes down to the power of the lobbies. Right. And Congress is very bad at taking away things. So you need to have an administration, a president, and a cabinet that is very committed to doing this, whatever this is, that works with the various constituencies to, to make it happen. And, and that takes a lot of political capital and will. As a political scientist, I would say that unless you have bipartisan support for wherever it goes, it's not going to be sustainable because there's always someone who's losing and there are other people who are winning, and you, you need to address that. Well, the two partisan approaches have failed so far, right. so right. maybe we move to Plan C. Maybe. We'll see. We'll <laughs> see. It takes a certain ability to do deals at the highest level to make that happen, and we'll see if the current fellow has the ability to do some deals. A certain fellow who <laughs> shall remain nameless. Yeah, so let's go back and remember what Sachin Jane said that ties in really well to what Paul was saying. Value-based care is going to have winners and losers. Not everyone is going to wind up happy or as rich and profitable as before. That's exactly right. You almost wonder at times if we bit off more than we could chew, right? Like to Paul's point, big transformational change is difficult because it's really difficult to understand what was the thing that made a difference? Should we have done this more incrementally? Well, and it requires so much political capital and everyone's got their backs up already and they're aligned in their different camps already. You know, woulda, coulda, shoulda. But had we started with a few programs that CMS put forth with bundled payments, people dip their toes in, they you know, feel it out. I get it. We see a lot of this with the healthcare systems that we're working with. You know, they aren't sure about this and they want to put the big toe in the water and they do that through the MSSP program because it's upside only. They're not ready to take full risk, upside downside, and so they try something like MSSP. And the counter argument to that, of course, is that there's no upside risk, so there's no real motivation. There's nothing that's really going to tear you away from the comfort of fee-for-service if you don't have something real at stake. That's absolutely true. But I'm going to pick up on something that Sachin said, which is a bias towards action, right? We're doing something. Does it need to be improved? Is this going to be an iterative process? Yes. 
but at least we have a bias towards action and we're doing something. And I think even Paul would agree with that. We can't just sit back and say, oh, well, we're all doomed. So it's just who's going to take that next step? That's right. And in our next episode, we talk to a healthcare executive who has seen the things that work, the things that don't. And there's some really good insights into how to build an ACO from the ground up. Decoding Healthcare is a production of Athena Health. Our producer is Nikki Zace. Our engineer and composer and jack-of-all-trades is Mike Moschetto. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can follow us on Twitter, at Athena Health. I'm at Kevin Van MD. And I'm at Joanna Weiss. And for more stories about healthcare in America today, go to athenainsight.com. Athena Insight.com.